This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Oh God, What Now, where freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. I'm Dorian Linsky. <laughs> Ian Dunt is editor-at-large of politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. The uh, increasingly salty Dominic Cummings has taken a break from Twitter threads to speak to Laura Kunzberg <laughs> and spill some more hot tea about former BFF Boris Johnson. Some tasty bits were trailed in advance, like Johnson saying that lockdown was unnecessary because it was only people over 80 basically mm. dying, and then realising at the last minute he should probably not meet the Queen, who is definitely over 80. <laughs> um, what, but there was a lot more to it. What did you think of the interview? Well, it, it, both both his performance and, I suppose, Laura Kunzberg's. For a start, I think Laura Kunzberg was absolutely fine. And I continue yeah. to be baffled by this process where every time Laura Kunzberg is even tangentially involved in something, everything has to be about Laura Kunzberg. And you're like, it's not even that she's so... That she's so wonderful that she deserves to be talked about all the time, but she's certainly not so bad that she deserves to be talked about all the time. And there's a kind of frenzy to the attention on her that I find kind of uncomfortable and, and mostly just baffling. I thought she, I thought she was very good. I thought she, sort of, mm-hmm. she, she held, pulled him up on on a lot of things. Yeah, and there's stuff you could ask, but right, but I mean, it's really easy when you've never done an interview, especially a high pressure interview, to go, why don't you perform to the absolute peak of intellectual capacity all the time? But actually, and you know, there's there's stuff you don't quite get that you sort of don't have the confidence for, or you didn't quite pick up on at the time. She, I thought she did fine. Um, he is, I, I can't deny it. Like he is a kind of dramatically fascinating individual because he's just so different to the specific dysfunction of most politicians. You know, most politicians, you're like, I know this dysfunction, I've seen it many times, but your dysfunction is actually quite different. And he kind of reminds me of, there's that sort of, there's a type that you see, it's usually guys, but not always, and it's usually when they're sort of undergraduates, and they're quite a bit smarter than most other people, and that kind of triggers this massive insecurity, where they're constantly in this quite aggressive way trying to demonstrate it, which paradoxically actually makes it harder for them to become smarter as the rest of their life goes on. He seems that type, and I think that that's generally, I've decided, the way to approach it. Because normally the problem with politician interviews is that they just keep hammering the line, and actually you know he i suppose lets himself down in a way but entertains other people because he just cannot stick to a line he, he is, he's very easily distracted <laughs> he's very easily lured into saying something well and most of the time he lures himself into a moral chasm so occasionally he will say things like oh and of course obviously i was trying to get rid of the prime minister that had only just been elected and so well you can't you can't obviously say that and he's like oh no of course i mean that's why the system is preposterous and shouldn't be allowed and to continue gets, this way it's just politics isn't it right and he's just like what the fuck are you saying he, he is a genuinely strange man. He's also, um, so putting all of that to one side then, 
and the fact that he is I, I do think he he is a moral chasm like I mean really he is really quite profoundly unlikable and I think motivated overwhelmingly by self-interest he shares with Johnson as well that characteristic of he's perpetually lying but he uses a cloak of truthfulness it's his cloak of truthfulness is rather different to Johnson's kind of layer of smirking irony that conceals or at least erodes around the falsities that he communicates However, there's a big difference between the two. You know, primarily it's that Johnson is just this sort of gibbering reactionary. And Cummings is this nerd egomaniac. And so when he covers all the other stuff, you just think, fuck you, you really are a dreadful human being. When it comes to COVID, you are presented with the reality, which is, who do you want in charge during COVID times? I mean, preferably neither of them. But of the two, Mm. you'd rather have the nerd nerd egomaniac. So on that basis, you do come out of it going, I do basically believe what you're saying about Johnson during the pandemic. And I do believe that if you've been in charge and and they'd failed in getting rid of you fewer people would have died and things wouldn't have been quite so disastrous. And I listened to the podcast version, which is like 90 minutes, which I think is longer than the TV oh, version. God. But, um, I hope you have it in you. I do hope that uh, long-time Romaniacs listeners uh, should, should definitely check out the bit where, where she, she goes over the, the, the promise on the side of the bus mm-hmm. and the turkey claim for quite a long time and him trying to explain why those lies were not really lies and it's just politics. Yeah, well, which may be is... something that I would like to have heard <laughs> some years ago. Well, also, but it's, you know, this is when people attack her for not asking. Well, she did ask the questions, you know what I mean? She, yeah, she yeah. stayed on them. And to be honest, I mean, his face when he answers them tells you more even than the answers themselves, which is just that kind of sniggering self-satisfaction indulgence of just, frankly, not having any moral standards at all in the way that you conduct political communications. So, you know, you, you, and psychologically, it was an enthralling watch. Morally, it was a rather dispiriting one. So you could watch it and then listen to the podcast <laughs> for two and a, <laughs> two and a Christ, half man. hours. Just, this is just fucked up. Of Tom. <laughs> Minnie Rahman is Campaigns and Comms Director at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Hi, Minnie. Hiya. Uh, having promised they would not raise national insurance contributions, the government are now planning to raise funds for social care reform by raising national insurance contributions. Um, <laughs> we all know there's a problem with social care. Um, what do you think of this solution? I mean, it is good that Johnson is making social care a priority. And I think they kind of had to do that. He'd promised to do that before COVID, but COVID itself has shown why we need to prioritise social care. And also because Brexit is about to kind of highlight huge issues in staffing and social care too. I think it's really interesting that he's gone back on that manifesto commitment. And apparently there's there's speculation anyway that supporting him on that was a condition of Sajid Javid rejoining the cabinet. So he's obviously really committed to to this idea. But the problem with national insurance contributions is that national insurance is one of the most regressive taxes that we have because you start paying it when you're earning just under 10 grand and it's not paid by anyone receiving state pension. So it's already loaded disproportionately onto younger and lower paid workers who are kind of already burdened with high rental costs and university fees and and all sorts. So in real terms, this policy will charge those on higher pay less as a proportion of their total incomes. And where this really fails for me is that 
the government can use tax to help tackle wealth inequality as well as invest in social care. And they can do that through other forms of taxation, like capital gains tax or, or even a wealth tax. So the problem here is that, you know, while they're saying they will invest the income raised into social care, which I actually don't really trust whether they'll be able to do that properly, they will also widen the wealth gap and not reform taxation in the way that's needed. So I, I don't think it's a great idea. One younger Tory MP says it looks like a war on the young. There's always a war on somebody. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it's not a culture war, it's a war on someone. But that I actually do agree in a sense that it does put a lot of burden onto young people and the people who benefit the most from this at this point in time are older people who won't be contributing. Our guest this week has been a tech writer since the days when a podcast came in a book of 100 floppy disks, which had to be loaded individually. <laughs> He's written a new book, Social Warming, The Dangerous and Polarising Effects of Social Media, which is so good that both me and Ian have given quotes for the blurb. Charles Arthur, welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, we'll be talking more later about the so-called pandemic, which is causing staff shortages and closures all over the shop. Can you explain the tech behind the app and if it's working like it's meant to um and also can it really work through walls and ping your neighbors as has been oh my God, this, this feels like when alex krotowski was on uh, was on loose ends and <laughs> and uh, clive anderson asked her to fix his email <laughs> <laughs> and she said i'm not here to fix your email okay uh, but <laughs> how does it work well the uh, the phones send out bluetooth signals saying hi i'm a phone who are you and uh, the other phone responds in a, in a cryptic way and says, okay, I'm, I'm phone XYZ. And if they've been within it's uh, two meters of each other for 15 minutes uh, and one of the owners of the phones turns out to test positive, then uh, that means you get pinged by the app. And yes, it can work through walls. Bluetooth does work through walls, as anyone who's got a Bluetooth speaker and has controlled next door's Bluetooth speaker by accident will know. So yeah, the, the tales of people getting pinged by because their neighbour upstairs who they've never met or the neighbour next door who they've never met um, has been pinged are absolutely true. And, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a big problem, I think. Or if it's not a big problem, it's one of those problems that that the app just has in itself. Because the other thing it can't tell is, were you outdoors? Uh, you know, an indoors versus outdoors is a colossal difference. Yeah. So, so that's my answer on the pandemic thing is, is it's, it's really quite a mess. So I've really struggled to organize my emails. Uh, is there any, do you have any tips? <laughs> that you would... Yeah, there's a button that you, you select all delete. And then... <laughs> Dorian, you've been, you've been looking at what's going on with this attempt uh, to get rid of sort of four groups on the far left of labor What's is it justifiable? What's been going on? So there's four groups: Labour Against the Witch Hunt, Labour in Exile, Resist, associated with Chris Williamson, and Socialist Appeal. And the issue, it seems to me, is obviously, and and, and the broader Labour left is very angry about this, you know, Stalinist, uh, Stalinist mm. purge. But the problem is, I think it, it comes back to, and it's the same problem with with Corbyn having the whip. Is there was a zero tolerance for anti-Semitism, so this is the bit where you just cannot get out of line, whether you you think it's right or wrong, or you're anti-Semitic or not. Mm-hmm. That is made very clear. Labour against the witch hunt exists to defend people accused of anti-Semitism. That's its only. Mm-hmm. purpose and also what you've got here is is, is all of them defending being related to chris williamson or defending chris williamson socialist appeal has printed has published articles complaining that it's all a smear it's uh war crimes denial in syria and resist by the way um supported george galloway in batley and spen <laughs> and yet nine <laughs> members of the nec voted against prescribing even resist 
Hmm. Uh, so what baffles me is why the left are defending these groups if they say that they oppose anti-Semitism. Why are they defending these groups, which apparently involve about a thousand people? You know, and they're using this sort of argument like, well, why aren't we concentrating on fighting the Tories? It's like, well, you can walk, chew gum and kick out cranks at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's not as if it takes a lot of time. It's, it's, a, it's a, well, everything in the NEC takes a few hours. <laughs> but I mean, it's not as if it's distracting them from anything. Um, and I do wonder why I'm not in favour of what some on the right would like, which is to prescribe momentum as well, because I don't think that's as clear-cut a case. I don't think you should be prescribing groups left, right and centre. I think these are quite specific cases and they really have... You know, and, and it is about anti-Semitism, I think. It's not about, you know, Marxism. Is there anyone on the Labour left who's taking a more reasonable view on this? Of actually going, you know what, these guys are too far gone. I, I, no, I've been pretty disappointed. I mean, I think what you've seen, you have seen quite a few people concentrating on socialist appeal and going, they're different. Um, and and they, they published these uh, regrettable articles, but that isn't all that they're about. Mm. Um, and it's like, you, you did publish the articles. <laughs> like living marxism published lots of articles they weren't but but people do tend to remember the one which denied the concentration camps in the balkans mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know what i mean <laughs> so i don't really understand why socialist appeal is so is so special and should, and should be protected and i don't understand what the moral or tactical worth is of a group as big as momentum and certain commentators defending these groups i mean i certainly don't understand why you would defend labor against the witch hunt or resist but even with socialist appeal it's like is this is this a hill you want to die on you know i've, I've always been of the belief that if you are a member of a group who believes a certain thing you do not go to the barricades for the worst most fringe most embarrassing people on your side you know there were people in the remain movement who who, who we thought i'm not sure these people are helping <laughs> um, and so what I don't understand about, about, about the broader Labour left is why they don't just go, do you know what, this is a few hundred really extreme people. We would be better off without them. But I suppose it's this sort of thin end of the wedge, slippery slope idea that, you know, what next for Keir Stalin? <laughs> um, but I think that, that is a, I think that's a tactical misjudgment. On this week's show, we look at the latest phase of the pandemic as the Prime Minister, Chancellor, Health Secretary and Leader of the Opposition celebrate Freedom Week by going into self-isolation. And we'll be talking to Charles about social warming and the dangerous effects of a world where everyone is extremely online. Plus, on this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, Prime Minister's Question celebrates its 60th birthday this month. Can the panel guess the names behind some of the most famous moments in the chamber? And if you're a Patreon backer, we have an exciting extra treat for you, a brand new bit of bonus audio coming out every Monday morning for backers only. Regulars in the show will be coming together to focus on lesser known stories or unusual aspects of our national nightmare in a short extra podcast that we had to call Oh God, What Else? (laughs) It's exclusive to Patreon backers, so if you'd like to brighten your Monday with a little Oh God, What Else? Then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast and sign up to support us. You'll be helping us to keep going and growing and we'll love you. There's T's and C's on the last part, by the way. But yeah. I mean, define love. <laughs> First up this week, case numbers have exceeded 50,000. Daily deaths are up to March levels. Sage have advised that mandatory face masks and working from home may have to be reinstated as early as early August at this rate. And number 10 had to scramble on Tuesday to confirm that being alerted by the NHS app did in fact mean you had to isolate after Business Minister Paul Scully claimed that it was only advisory, like a referendum. (laughs) 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 It's just not going to let that fucking go. 
Ian, we've just seen a record-breakingly fast U-turn from Johnson Sunak on the pilot scheme to avoid self-isolation after having been in contact with Sajid Javid. The scheme is apparently in place at 20 organisations, including number 10. Would their situation have been different if the public had actually known that this scheme existed? Well, it's not really clear to me that the scheme does exist. <laughs> I mean, so they've meant, so far they mentioned, was it TFL, Network Rail, Border Force, right? TFL came out and said, we're not a member of that. National Rail, the RMT came out and said, well, that, that's not a scheme that operates in National Rail. Um, Border Force said that they tried it in Devon and Manchester, but then t- decided against it because staff didn't like it. The closest we got to it existing was someone saying we didn't like it and got rid of it. So on that basis, you sort of think, well, what is this? Have you just fucking made it up? You've got to say for sort of randomised trials where, where, you know, it's an even chance whether you're in the one or the, or the other. <laughs> yeah. The chance of, you know, the three of them, oh, it just happens <laughs> we, we do the other one. It's, it's some hell of a coin flip there. I mean, you know, were they buying lottery tickets as well? They're just life's winners. <laughs> it comes naturally to we set up our own pilot scheme? <laughs> right here. Do you think that, that Javid catching COVID despite being double vaxxed will affect vaccine confidence? Or if it's something that, do you think the message is clear enough that you can still get it and you can still pass it on, but you have far, far, far less chance of, of, of being seriously ill. Is that is that message out there? Or do you think a lot of people still think that double vaxxed is like a force field? Or the other way around, that, that because people are getting ill, that it gives an opportunity to, to the vaccine hesitant or sceptical to say, look, it doesn't do any good. Because this was, yeah, I mean, that that I, I thought that it was solid. And, and this week I wrote a piece and so, sort of afterwards on Twitter, someone said, your, there's nothing wrong with your par on um, you can get double jabs and you can still infect people. But it can't you might want to add something saying, by the way, the vaccines still work. <laughs> and it was that was one of, course, of the few yeah, times yeah. I went back into an article when no, that sentence needs to be in there because you become kind of too used to assuming that part and the next. I, I think at this point. I mean, I don't know what everyone else's lives are like right now. I mean, I know that personally, like, I, I, I've lost track of the amount of people that are telling me about either themselves or someone they know being double jabbed and, and, and getting infected. Mm. So it feels like that's pretty solid general knowledge. And that people also have a pretty solid general knowledge that fewer people are being hospitalised, fewer people are dying than would have been if we had had these absolute numbers right. before the vaccine. The Times had a starting report that almost half of men under 30 in Scotland's biggest cities have not had their first vaccine appointment. Now... Most people are not as incurably deranged as, as Piers Corbyn. Um, so how can the remaining unjabbed population be convinced? I'm not the person to do it because I get pretty impatient. Um, <laughs> but what, what, what's the sort of message for the people that don't think there's microchips in it? I mean, we know how to do this. We have sort of decades of research, really, academically, showing that coercion and bullying and mandatory measures do not work and increase resistance, sometimes with the measure that you want them to take now and sometimes with the next one. We know that the most effective messengers are people within communities who engage with the concerns. So, I mean, in January, we had 22% uncertainty about uh, vaccines among ethnic minorities. Now, that was down to 6% by March. One of the reasons that took place is because we had really effective communication coming out from people within communities saying, look, we know why you don't always trust the authorities, right? This is, you know, speaking to people in a language understanding and addressing legitimate concerns, especially about the, the speed with which they were authorised. Currently, with young people, the ONS stats suggest it's about 13% um, hesitancy, so below what we had in January for ethnic minority groups, a manageable amount, and you could expect that to come down if we talk to people respectfully on their level about the concerns that they have. In, in that case, there's some
some diff- some things are the same. Some of the concerns among young people are about the speed of authorization. Others were triggered a bit more by the AstraZeneca stuff of saying, well, if I'm not at risk from the virus and the government's basically said, you know, I'm at risk from some of the jabs and that confused people a bit. There's some suggestion because they might be more online than other groups. They might have seen more of the sort of conspiracy theory stuff. But there's nothing there to suggest that you would approach that problem in any different way than we do for any other group or have done over the last few decades. Minnie, the the government apparently is planning to replace the hands face space slogan with keep life moving, which sounds like like an advert for bio yoga or something. Uh, And apparently border guards have been advised not to check passengers traveling from countries on the green or amber lists. I mean, do you get the feeling that the government on some level has, has given up trying to control the virus? Yeah, I mean, our travel restrictions, infrastructure at the border and the cost of testing if you've been abroad have been a shambles since the beginning. So I'm not really surprised that Border Force have been told not to bother checking the forms. Although, honestly, I don't know how much I would have personally trusted Border Force to be able to implement that properly or in a non-discriminatory mm. way. But I mean, it, it's quite obvious, you know, the fact that we've reopened everything with very few restrictions still in place shows that they're they're not intending to control the virus. Their entire strategy is reliant on the vaccination program being successful. They've ignored all sorts of things that, you know, like 1200 scientists who signed a letter in the Lancet saying that they thought the government was pursuing herd immunity by mass infection and they opposed that. So I don't think they're trying to control the virus as a whole. What I think they're trying to do is hope that self-isolation can limit hospital admissions, but they're also relying on an app they know doesn't work. So no control at all. I'm not sure they care. Um, I mean, lots of schools have closed early or sent home entire year groups, and it's only a few weeks before everybody's, you know, back at school. Do you think children should be vaccinated now? Yeah, I mean, my first instinct on this was like, everybody should be vaccinated right now, panic stations, let's do it. And then I remembered that I'm not actually a scientist. So that was a reminder. <laughs> of me. Um, but I think the thing that really convinced me that we don't need to prioritise children's vaccinations right now, like aside from the whole, you know, kids don't get that sick if they catch it, obviously, they can spread it. And that's a risk, but a lot of people have been vaccinated. I read something from the World Health Organization that said that they would prefer that the UK didn't prioritise vaccinating children because it's more important to get the global adult and vulnerable population vaccinated Mm, first as they're more at risk and that we should donate our excess vaccines to that global effort. And that made a lot of sense to me because it doesn't really matter if the entire UK population is vaccinated if we're not contributing properly to the global vaccination effort because the risk of variants is so high. And like the reality is, is that a new variant could push all of our efforts back and we're not going to be out of this until the entire world is out of this and it's in control. So for me, it's a matter of prioritisation. I'm not opposed to them getting vaccinated. It's just about when, I think. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the the thing on vaccinating the children is, I mean, the JCVI put out a statement, I think it was on, on Tuesday, and they're only recommending it for those who are clinically vulnerable. And they seem to be a bit more concerned than the US is about cases in the under 18 year olds of myocarditis, uh, inflammation of the heart. And just sort of looking at the data, it seems like, you know, one jab would be plenty for if you were going to go and do it. And the two jabs is possibly too much, whereas the US has gone, gone ahead and done two. And they seem to have a sort of slight excess of cases there. And I think that's what the JCVI is, is concerned about here. 
And that's why they have recommended it. I mean, when I want to depress myself, I read The Guardian's live COVID news feed, which is very good. No knock on The Guardian. But Jesus, it's not. There's no, and now for some good news in there. Um, and what you're saying about, you know, the, the variant, it's like there are, there are countries now that are having the worst time that they've had over the whole period. You know, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Myanmar. And, you know, this is because of Delta. And so I think you're right. If you put it in a global, if you make it a global choice, is it children or is it adults, vulnerable adults, particularly in all of these different countries? I think that changes my thinking completely. There is, of course, I mean, the the worst fear for, for everyone, not just the government politically, but for everybody else is another lockdown. Do you think that there will be, as Sage suggested, some kind of reversal short of a lockdown, whether that is just simply bringing back face masks? Yeah, I I think they will have to. To me, it looks like the government kind of assesses whether we need a lockdown using two barometers. You know, they look at whether there is a high number of deaths and then they follow by looking at whether the NHS can cope. And that doesn't just include the number of patients, but also the number of staff isolating and people unable to work. Now, what they should have done is use the opportunity of summer to bring the number of infections all the way down. So they could have kept masks and a bit of social distancing and utilise the school holidays and the good weather. And then that would have meant that there were not so many infections kind of before school starts. And at the rate that it's going, it seems to me that they will have to do something unless they want a proper lockdown in September. Because as soon as school and and uni starts again, that's going to lead to a bit of a spike. And again, if you're concerned about a risk of a new variant, then you should probably be thinking about how to, to level off the number of infections. I feel like they'll probably do that first so they can stop short of a lockdown because there won't be as many deaths because the vaccine is working to an extent. But there will be a lot of people off sick or needing to isolate. And I guess in terms of needing a lockdown, it depends whether the government, you know, thinks they need the high number of deaths to make a lockdown worth it. But I'm preparing for the worst case scenario. And I just kind of think September will be in some kind of lockdown again. Charles, uh, you explained how the app worked. Many people are deleting it now to avoid having to self-isolate. Do you think that it's lost or is losing too much public confidence to work effectively? Oh, yeah. I I think that's definitely the case that that, uh, there's the whole thing now about, well, is it, it, you know, like a referendum? Is it advisory rather than actually being a legal requirement, which it is if you're contacted by by a miracle, by Dido Harding actually ringing you up and say, hello, (laughs) test and trace person. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, I mean, there's anecdotally, I I know people who've, who've deleted it, turned it off. Um, who, who are simply not taking any notice of it. And I suspect we're going, that the next stage you're going to see probably in a week or so will be employers pretty much telling employees to delete it and say, you know, don't take any notice of that thing. It's not doing us any good. You know, we need to have you here or we need to have, you know, the staff. And, and I think that basically we've now reached the point where it's hurting so many businesses so much. And they're saying, what is this really telling us? That even though cases are rocketing, even though we know Delta is more infectious, even though you know everyone is concerned, like many points out, you know about the possibility at some future point of a lockdown. Right now, they're all saying, just just get on and do it for God's sake, and you know, it's sort of uh, helter skelter into into who knows where. 
Well, there's lots of sort of ping-related stories of, of disruption to, you know, sort of staff shortages disrupting food supply chains. Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a furious letter about having to shut down Cinderella because a single minor cast member tested positive, even though everyone else tested negative. And even as somebody who, who's, who's, you know, who's not sort of like anti-lockdown or, or anti-the app, that does seem to me that as it's being, as the self-isolating protocol is being loosened for NHS and care workers, that maybe the way to, if it's not too late, the way to stop a complete collapse in public compliance is to have a bit more flexibility so that the whole show, literally in the case of Cinderella, you know, doesn't shut down because of one person. Is, is, is there still time to sort of just to, to have a more uh, flexible um, system? Oh, yeah, they could. They could. I mean, I'm a bit surprised Andrew Lloyd Webber hasn't heard of these things called understudies, but um, <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you could tweak the app so that it would be, you know, you've got to be within, you know, two metres of someone for half an hour, except, of course, the trouble is we know that Delta is more infectious. So actually, it's uh, it's one of those things where you make it less sensitive and it's it's going to lead to more infections, ironically. And there was some talk, I think, around the weekend about the government looking to uh, to make it less sensitive and, and actually they shut that down you know they shut down the, the rumors around that pretty rapidly so so they they clearly have this this problem where they're thinking this is causing too much trouble but if we make it less sensitive then actually it's it is going to lead to more infections so so they're just sort of letting everyone screw it up on their own yeah they're they're being for a very mayor from jaws and saying well there's personal responsibility for getting by the shark but you know we're not going to improve our uh, you know shark warning system at all it's crazy, isn't it? It's almost like if you, even if you close the curtains and pretend that there's nothing outside, the external world still exists. And if you pretend that the <laughs> fucking pandemic's over, it's still happening, even even despite what you said. A lot of my questions are basically: if this government was an entirely different government, what would it do? <laughs> yeah, and, and the answer is always better. It would just better. do better. Yeah. Um, finally, clubs, bars, and festivals have all been uh, shown to be super spreaders in the Netherlands um, over the past month. Um, and the government's announced a plan to impose vaccine passports for nightclubs from September. You've opposed vaccine passports very vociferously in the past. Labour says they're opposing them now. They are being introduced in France. This is the first context for them in the UK. Have you changed your mind at all? Do you think that perhaps that there are special cases where they'd be uh, justified? No. Um you could make it in principle, and obviously in principle, you, I could find myself supporting it. I mean, I've just, you know, found myself supporting lockdowns, which is a much more extensive infringement on our liberties than that. And you do it to, to prevent harm to others, you know, the classic calculus. So the first question you need to ask is, what is it, what is the problem it is trying to solve? And the second one is, would it work? And then the first problem of itself is completely unclear what the fuck that is. Because if it's for infections, then they should be in place. If, if it's required for infections, they should be in place now. If they're required in September, <laughs> then they're not required in the first place. And we know we've just had a conversation about how the fact that you can be double jabbed and you can still infect people. Now, if we get into a situation where we say you can go into this room and dance and, and get rid of of all social distancing as long as you show that you've had the vaccine what that is is an invitation for people to do that then they carry it out and they infect others so that doesn't work for that problem the other problem then is hesitancy does it address hesitancy and i mean i've already outlined why that is not the approach that's in the academic literature that's not the approach that we've seen work in other countries but i'd just like to add to that just my kind of just abject disappointment at watching I mean, no other group has been treated this way isn't it telling that it's clubs that they start with right it's not like anyone was going they would never ever have started with uh, village pubs 
right? Because in that case, you know, that's their voters. But if it's young people, it's like, no, they haven't even had a chance, most of them. It's been a month since they've been able to do this. We've had low supplies. They haven't even had a chance to take the vaccine yet. And already it's like, we'll fucking, we'll fucking boss you around until you do what you're told. They're the only group that gets treated like this. There's no basis yet upon which that we might conclude that they need to be. And even if that was the case, it wouldn't make any sense to implement it at the point in which they project to do so. So on no possible avenue could it make any sense for us to be following this plan at the moment. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Our guest this week is Charles Arthur, longtime technology writer and author of new book, Social Warming, The Dangerous and Polarizing Effects of Social Media. So, Charles, can you just start by briefly explaining the sort of concept of social warming? Is this something that you have invented? Is it TM, Charles Arthur? I think it is TM, TM me, actually. Yeah, it, it just sort of occurred to me, I was, I was writing a feature for the, for the Guardian a while back, and I was struggling with it quite badly. And I just got to thinking about the parallels between the ways that global warming, which is sort of on, on people's minds a lot, was rather like uh, the effects that social media seem to be having, which is that people just all seem to be much more angry at each other. They, they, emotions were closer to the surface, and social media seemed to bang people together and to create friction between groups of people who otherwise just wouldn't have come into contact with each other. And what I, I identified through the book is that there's a four-step process. So first of all, we're very tribal. It's, humans just are tribal. It's what our, our evolution has, has built into us. So you're in the tribe or you're out of the tribe. And if you're causing trouble inside the tribe, then you can be ejected from the tribe. So we have in and out. The next step that you get is that you have the outrage phenomenon where this process where we see something that outrages us and we react to it. And the next stage is that with social networks, you get the process by which it's amplified because social networks are all about attention. They're all about engagement. And the thing that they really want is for you to be interested in stuff. And the thing that interests us is the stuff that outrages us. It goes back to our very primal reactions. Mm. And finally, the thing that happens is that because the social networks like this uh, engagement, as they think of it, outrage as we see it, they don't take much interest in moderating it. So Facebook doesn't close down the QAnon groups, even though they're growing enormously. Uh, Twitter doesn't stop all the pylons of people when you got the Gamergate stuff in 2014. All those sorts of phenomena that you see are part of this four-stage process where you have tribalism, outrage, amplification, and then a, a sort of lack of moderation or an indifference to moderation. Because, I mean, like you said, there there is a sort of tribalist instinct in people. And some people say that social media is simply exposed like a like the sort of CSI blacklight. What, what an angry, quarrelsome species we are. But you explain that there are these sort of mechanisms to fire up users. And there's a sort of, there's sort of the idea that you, your first line is nobody meant for this to happen. You know, that social media companies obviously don't go, uh, they want to cause kind of, you know, sort of massacres in Myanmar or corrupt elections or whatever. And yet there are these algorithms that seem to breed radicalization and conflict. So I wonder 
if part of the story is the sort of utopian ideal of bringing everybody together has gone terribly wrong, what is the point where you think that they become culpable and that intelligent people should have been fully aware what fires they were stoking? That's quite a deep question. But I I mean, I think that actually 2016 was a big turning point. The whole way that actually first in the Philippines, Facebook was used in the election there. And then uh, obviously with the Brexit referendum where Facebook was used um, for all the adverts that Dominic Cummings was so proud of, all all the turkey ones, which were complete myths, lies, but they fired up people who had never voted before and, and, you know, got people to turn out. All these people who are on Facebook who are completely uninterested in politics. Um, but, you know, Facebook is a thing that they use. And then, of course, with uh, with Trump, where, again, you had a, a Facebook election where all the adverts that ran in three particular states, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all made that tiny little difference. And that was actually one of the, the things I was that I really keyed into was that just a few thousand votes in each of those states made a difference. And I thought, this is like the sort of, you know, the difference between, you know, zero centigrade and 0.1 centigrade. You know, it's the difference between freezing and water. It's where all these things suddenly change. And I think that's the point when, when Facebook and actually other social, social media as well should have recognized it. And Mark Zuckerberg denied for a long time that Facebook had really played any role in the US election then. But he came around to realize that actually all the adverts and the fake news did have a, a, a responsibility in the end. I had a bunch of questions, actually. I mean, the, the most important question I had was, uh, do, both. there's a quote from Dorian and me on the front of your book, but why is Dorian's quote above mine? <laughs> <laughs> I think we were going for a reverse alphabetical. Oh, absolutely. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, I feel quite reassured by that. Can, can you talk, talk to us, sort of for people who don't know, about what Gamergate was and why it's quite a pivotal moment? Yeah, Gamergate was uh, a phenomenon on Twitter, principally, where a woman games developer was subjected to a torrent of abuse, which arose from a blog post that an ex-boyfriend of hers wrote, a really long, really emo blog post, thousands of words long, in which basically he blamed her, claimed that she had been sleeping with other people when they'd been together, uh, and said that, um, suggested that uh, she'd been sleeping with games journalism. And this all then got conflated into a big thing where there was a huge pile-on against women, women games developers, games journalists, and those who were doing the pile-on said it was about, quote, ethics in games journalism. And all the games journalists said, what the hell are you on about? This is rubbish. <laughs> and it was it was a, just a storm that raged across Twitter and would spill over into news organizations. So I was on The Guardian at the time, and we would get emails from people saying, I hope you're never going to employ journalist X ever again, because they have written in, in favor of this person. And we would think, what, what on earth does this person think? How do you think the world works? And it, it, was, it was a really weird sort of radicalization. But it was, a, it was a way in which the whole outright began to coalesce around it, because they started to see the power of simply saying things without necessarily being true, and the power that that could have, and the way that retweets and quote tweets could sort of uh, start to just grind someone down and it also spilled over into real world threats so that you you had a a phenomenon where things that you thought just lived in the online world started to shift into the the real world and and it really showed the way that that this wasn't just it's not just the internet it's actually everything and there was a moderator failure at that point right 
very much so. Twitter just didn't really think it was important. Free, Twitter at the time thought of itself as the uh, the free speech wing of the free speech party. And the idea that you would uh, wholesale remove people from Twitter for basically harassing people endlessly was was anathema to them. They've uh, they've changed their view quite a lot since then, which which I think is e- interesting. Yeah, it's an evolution, but you know, even at the time, they were, it was eight years old as an organisation, and all the lessons about moderation had long since been learned in all sorts of other forums up and down the net. You know, it's not as if you know, people being on forums, people sending messages to each other is new. You know, that's been going since the 1990s, and all the lessons about moderation, how to build good communities versus bad ones. You know, you throw the trolls out, you make it impossible for them to use your system. And that's the way you build com- good communities. That's been known for you know, more than 20 years. There's a really sort of striking bit in the book about the the mechanism of the retweet, which mm. unfortunately had a, an effect on me and now makes me think every time I do it, which I know is what you wanted, but you've made me analyse myself and I've always tried to avoid that. Can you talk about why sort of the retweet is part of that sort of social warming and, and the potential damage that it can do and, and, and maybe how we should how we should think about that as a mechanism for information exchange? Well, remember the thing about the way that this this social warming happens is it's about the outrage and the amplification. And what we tend to look at, what tends to grab our notice, what can, tends to be pushed into our feeds, either by people or by the algorithm, is things that we find outraging. So, you know, a, a tweet that may be completely untrue, but which we think, oh my God, that's just, that's just awful. It's so easy to retweet. You just hit the little, you know, just hit the little symbol. It goes bang. And there you have, you've retweeted it. You may not have taken the trouble to recheck whether it was true, but look, it's, you've done the thing and, and now it's there. And it's this, this amplification. That's, that's the thing that, uh, that happens. And one of the ways that it's most powerful is when you have what uh, what are called scissor statements, which is not a phrase I make up, made up, or I wish I had. It's by a guy called <laughs> Scott Alexander, um, who runs the uh, Slate Star Codex blog. Uh, scissor statements are phrases uh, which will split any group that reads them into two. So, you know, you're either for it or against it. You know, a classic one is trans women are women. And you will find that that will split people into either agreeing or disagreeing. You can't be in the middle. Another phrase that's, that it, that's come up since the book was published, pretty much, uh, which will do the same is critical race theory. You know, people have no idea what it is, but they don't know which side of it they stand. And, and you can see them being bred uh, through the power of retweets on, online. You can see them gaining this power and you can see them, people coalescing on each side of them. And it, you know, it's fascinating once you do stand back from it and let yourself say, oh, look, there's an outrage tweet. Oh, look, there's an outrage retweet. Once you start to identify it, it becomes much easier to, to see yourself you know, succumbing to it. And you know, I admit that I do as well. Uh, but I try to sort of stay off it. Do you ever fight with anyone on Twitter? Is, is there a pressure now that you publish the book that you're like, I fucking cannot fight with someone or else oh I've completely God, trashed my own Do I ever fight with people on Twitter? Jesus, ask anyone who knows me. I'm, I'm appallingly, I'm so easy to be led into, into fights. On <laughs> oh, thank God. That's reassuring. I, I, you know, in that sense, do I take my own medicine? Not really. I try to, but, but sometimes, you know, I just, I, I guess I have a sort of a, a journalistic desire for the truth, and I want I want things to be true, and I want people to understand things that are true. And some things I see, and they just rile me too much. I I just have to. No, actually, it's not. And that's it. No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> every day, every day, anyone who knows me. 
many are you ever sort of susceptible to this social warming or are you i mean generally you you you, you strike a saintly presence on, <laughs> oh, on, on twitter.com <laughs> I, don't, I don't generally see you like in kind of heated beefs but do you sort of recognize i suppose that temptation to retweet the awful thing to sort of get into it yeah i think i had quite a learning curve with um social media and with twitter because I feel like when I first started using it, I was so overwhelmed with everyone else's opinion that I just didn't really say anything because I was like, oh, I I just don't know. And then I did used to get in quite heated conversations with people. And then I very quickly realised that it wasn't worth it for my own mental health. But then I kind of, as a campaigner, I always just have to go back to how is this helping my kind of end goal? What is this achieving? And that's something that I've had to really practice for myself. And I think when I kind of go into social media with that thing in mind, it stops me from kind of engaging in this toxic debate. And I can see other people thinking they're doing a good job and thinking they're helping with whatever cause it is they're pushing. And actually, they're they're just making things a lot worse. So it's quite a a hard thing. <laughs> um, Ian, you went to us about, about sort of like end, you know, is this actually helping me achieve my goals? Do I? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just queuing up your next question. What was my next question? In a certain nice segue. I didn't know I had one. I thought I did all my questions. Oh, no, there's another one here. All right, sorry. Sorry. I th- it's always this professional, as you might have noticed. <laughs> this is about... Do you notice that really sort of smooth segue? Just... Twisted metal everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like bloody ne- GB News. <laughs> <laughs> Where's fucking Saintly Mini that we were talking about? That's not Saintly Mini. No, I should just save it for the podcast. She's <laughs> <laughs> turned this into Take the Knee. Yeah. um so i mean he did explain how sort of twitter has been been very bad for politicians and journalists i mean they can't get away from it entirely especially not journalists did you have a sort of advice for them really on on how they should be conducting themselves on the website yeah i mean i suppose i have to sort of exclude myself or maybe i should include myself it's really to think okay what is what is this adding to if you're if you're sort of thinking of, of yourself being faithful to an organisation, you know the one that employs you, then I guess you think, is this helping the organisation or is it not? You know, am I am I raising its uh, reputation or not? And then you're also thinking, is it raising my personal reputation? Because that's often the thing is that journalists are not tied to an organisation forever. And it was interesting that um, you know journalists of the Washington Post are very focused not only on you know is this appropriate for the Washington Post, but how is this going to affect my brand and me. As for advice, I mean, God, it's it's always sort of don't retweet it unless you've checked it, and uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, always be mindful that people will be uh, digging back through your tweets forever unless you set them to auto delete, which I think is actually quite a wise thing to do. So, social media companies recently done various things to reduce disinformation. There's the kind of you know, do you want to read this before you retweet it? There's the kind of particularly on COVID, a lot of stuff is sort of flagged up. Do you believe that there are people in, in, in top positions there, you know, which now includes um, Nick Clegg at Facebook? Do you believe that they care enough to really want to fix this or are they doing just enough to sort of fend off government action? Because if they don't get their house in order to an extent, then there's all kinds of measures that politicians might take. To some extent, they can't fix it. This is this is a, a machine that is running downhill and, and no one is strong enough to stop it running downhill. It, by the very fact of what social media enables, by the amplification 
function. You can't stop it doing what it does. It just shows us who we are, and it sort of turns a magnifying glass on it that's got the sun behind it. It, it just really focuses all that heat and, and makes us hotter. We, you, you really cannot change how that functions. The, the best you could hope for would be that you would minimize the downsides by looking for it really carefully. But, I mean, in terms of misinformation, disinformation, I, I had a realization, which is that Facebook doesn't know how, how big the misinformation problem is. It can say how many people it's directed towards vaccines, but it has no idea how much vaccine misinformation is on Facebook because there's no way to measure it. So they may be hoping that there's not going to be some colossal amount of government regulation, but I don't think even governments know what it, what it is they want to regulate. So finally, how can we as bloody people, flawed, <laughs> fallen, broken individuals, <laughs> thrown out of heaven... You said about, you know, politicians and, and, and journalists, but how does the average individual use, continue to use social media if they feel they have to or, or they still enjoy, you know, being in contact with people? Particularly now, it's hard a lot of the time to kind of meet up with people. What are the sort of the, the basic steps you do that you, you sort of, to use it sort of wisely and not contribute to the sort of hellscape aspect of it? I think actually recognising what the hellscape aspects are, you know, recognise when a tweet is basically something that's trying to outrage you and, and just, you know, hold your finger back from, from hitting the retweet button and think about it a little. Look at all the examples of the sort of the, the waves of rage and the, and the people sort of uh, having this issue that's the most important thing in the world. I mean, one of the people who I quote in the book says, that he has depression and that he would realize when he was getting into a depressive episode because everything would seem equally dramatically awful. And he mm. said, when I go on Twitter, that's the same. You know, someone, it's, it's dramatically awful that, that the milk that was in the fridge is spoiled and it's dramatically awful that Biden is president. It's like, well, yeah, surely one of these is less important than the other. I mean, you know, which it is, you have to decide. But on Twitter, everything has, is sort of, you know, it's two-dimensional. Everything is colossally bad or colossally whatever and being able to make the distinction and, and say okay this doesn't really matter and um you know i i try to you know i try to retweet things are happy dogs because hell yeah who can argue with a happy dog <laughs> now it's time for underrated overrated where each week we pick the facebook and friends reunited of politics <laughs> Uh, this week, we're asking our guest, Charles Arthur. Underrated, obviously, dogs. Overrated. Uh, Are they there? Be being a reply guy. Um, <laughs> no, but, but seriously, what are your categories? Uh, well, I've, uh, mine's not within politics, because uh, it would be too easy to sort of go all Dominic Cummings on it. My overrated is um, firing billionaires into not quite space so that they come back down again in 10 minutes. Uh, you know, for one thing, you know, having to come back down again is a bit of a disappointment. You know, if we could sort of do it so it was one way, maybe they all meet on Mars, that would that'd be good. So I, I think that all the all the excitement over, oh, my God, he went to this, he went to, well, we're calling it space. But anyway, it just leaves me completely blank. I just don't, I don't get all the excitement about it because we've been firing people up in tin cans for, you know, 15 years or so. And we actually went a lot further when the state was funding it rather than, rather than billionaires. And I don't see how... This leads to commercial space travel. It's, it's uh, you know, if we want to have commercial space travel, let's just define space as starting at 30,000 feet and then everyone gets commercial space travel when they've ever gone And my underrated, my underrated uh, was actually pointed out to me by my, uh, my youngest. He said, Lego. So Lego 
hit its target to be fully renewable three years early in 2019. And uh, just at the end of last month, announced that it's going to start making bricks, its Lego bricks, from recycled drinks bottles. Oh, wow. And that it aims to be using zero uh, oil uh, from 2035. So uh, that's what I give you as my underrated. It's time to turn to a good old-fashioned technology that doesn't start riots and coups in but your emails. Um, This week, Richard Alderson asks, the recent focus on racist abuse on social media has renewed interest in photo ID verification. This could impact people living under repressive regimes or those who prefer to remain anonymous to explore their identities online. So would there be value in creating an optional verification system? Verified users could then choose to only interact with other verified users, allowing the majority to be in a safer place, but also letting people maintain anonymity if they need to. Minnie, does this strike you as as a workable compromise? I'm just generally quite opposed to ID verification. Again, this comes back to like the kind of people that I work with and who's excluded from kind of mainstream conversation anyway, and how that works. If you're someone who's undocumented, for example, using social media is probably one of the only ways that you can get your voice heard and have your story told. And if you need to kind of have some kind of ID verification, and then people can optionally choose not to hear you if you don't do that. I think that's quite detrimental. So I just don't really see a place for private social media companies to have that data. And then the relationships between that and government and private corporations also scares me a bit. So I'm a no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Charles, this is probably something that you, you, you've thought about, maybe maybe sort of written about. Is this... I mean, this would create a sort of two-tier system, I suppose. Is it a way of shielding people from, I suppose, the worst side of, of anonymity, which is abuse, while allowing other people to, to, to keep anonymity? It's always initially very promising, isn't it? But actually, it, it sort of exists already. I mean, on a lot of the you know, Twitter and stuff will say, uh, you know, don't show me tweets from people who haven't verified their um, account by adding a phone number to it. No sort of disrespect to the sender of the email, but you never get these emails from people who say, hello, I'm a whistleblower at a big company. Why don't we have verification for people who want to post on social media? Part of the power of social media, you know, part of the strength of it is that pretty much anyone can put something up. You know, the George Floyd film was crucial um, and you know, no one verified her. She just put it up there and it was it was a document which, which turned out true. So the superficial attractiveness of it... The, the way to solve this problem is much more better moderation because the systems do exist for that. And certainly the ways of preventing effectively unverified accounts from posting on very famous footballers' accounts and stuff do exist. It's just the companies are rather slack about responding to them. That's great. Um, it's actually changed my mind because I thought it was a good idea. Now <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say anything. Basically, my advice when I tweet is that I should just send something to Minnie and go, is this, does this sound good? Is this right? Oh, I don't know if I can cope with the volume of... You'd have to have a, vaccines, have a, a, a separate email account for Dorian's shaky opinions. <laughs> And that's the show. Thanks to Minnie. Thanks, everyone. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, Charles Arthur. Thank you. In the extra bit for Patreon backers, it's 60 years since the first edition of Prime Minister's Questions, and we're looking back at its finest moments. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. 
Hello and thanks from me to Kerry Wilson, Lucy Kivlin, Paul Jenkins, Stevie, Alexander Sutherland and Chris Ramsden. And a big thanks from me to Ben Tyndale, Alison, Viv O'Connell, Alex Rushforth, Chris Simpson and Marlene Shunerman. And thanks for me to Simon Stevenson, George Fielding, Karen, Mike Jones, Marty Simpson and Daniel Standing. Take care, we'll see you soon. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Minnie Rahman. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yonas Ofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. On this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, it's 60 years since Labour MP Fenner Brockway, friend of George Orwell's, asked PM Harold Macmillan the first question in the first session that established Prime Minister's questions as a permanent, regularly scheduled event. May I express our appreciation of this new arrangement for answering questions and the hope that it will be convenient for the Prime Minister as well as useful to the House, said Brockway. And someone else shouted, Rubbish! Minnie, our friend Aisha Hazarika and fellow Labour veteran Tom Hamilton called their book about PMQ's Punch and Judy politics. Uh, It's sort of become Parliament's noisy shop window since first being televised in the late 80s. Is it primarily a TV event? Is that what you feel when you're watching it? That it, it is all just trying to sort of get the lines for, for the, the news bulletins? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm so conflicted by PMQs because it is the absolute worst of Parliament and the best at the same time. <laughs> um, and like, it's it's quite an amazing act of theatre if you think about how much effort goes into it and the preparation and the stress but the reality is that it's a chaotic mess and I don't know I I feel like it's gotten a lot worse in the last few years and it's so stylized it's so hard to understand what's going on and what the rules are if you haven't engaged with it properly it's on in the middle of the day when no ordinary person thinks, oh, you know what, I'll just I'll just pop on PMQ, shall I? I mean, maybe they did. I mean, you're shaking your head here. Ian's but, not ordinary. Um, so. I, I said oh, ordinary. I've, I've watched it all my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but it totally, it totally holds up your theory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe people did back in the day. I remember my granddad used to watch PMQs religiously when I was really young, but Netflix didn't exist. So I just don't know who, who is watching it now, who isn't a political pundit, who isn't someone who's like obsessed with politics and and isn't the media. And I think the worst thing about it is that you never actually get any information out of a politician from PMQs. It is just an opportunity for them to kind of show off and to show how clever they are. And I think that for the general public, it's really hard to relate to. And I actually tell my friends or people who kind of ask me questions about politics, I'm like, just don't watch that because I don't think it's representative. And I think it actually puts people off engaging. Are select committee hearings the the sort of the hipster's choice where, where you actually <laughs> you actually do get a lot of information because people are being grilled at length and at oath and it doesn't have yeah. the razzle dazzle. No, I mean, I absolutely love select committees, but <laughs> I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm not an ordinary person. Um, I think that, that was they, a trailer yeah, for the Extra Time edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? And we did a quiz, so you will want to hear this one. Every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'd appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.
Thank you.